summer of 1884, 14 years after fleeing the country, Louis Riel returned to Canada with the intention of using his political influence to lead a new resistance in the Northwest Territories. Upon Riel's arrival, both Plains Cree leaders Big Bear and Poundmaker were formulating their own independent grievances, which were laid out in meetings with Riel in early June of 1884. The grievances of the Plains Cree leaders were quite different from the Métis settlers, and while the purpose of the meetings was to create a united front between the Métis and the Plains Cree people, nothing was ultimately resolved, nor was a plan laid out until the following year. In 1885, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald enlisted Catholic priest Albert Lacombe once again to assist in ensuring the neutrality of the Blackfoot people. Upon his arrival, Lacombe convinced Chief Crowfoot that the Métis Rebellion would be a lost cause and agreed to keep his Blackfoot warriors out of the conflict entirely. Meanwhile, Louis Riel was beginning to alienate many of his Métis followers due to his newly found beliefs that God had chosen him to be the divine leader of the Métis. Nevertheless, Riel managed to convince both Plains Cree Chief Poundmaker and Cree Chief Big Bear's people to join along with this coalition of French and Anglo-Métis in what would historically be known as the Northwest Rebellion later that spring. On March 19, 1885, Louis Riel declared the Provisional Government of Saskatchewan, which included parts of both present-day Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. With exception to Louis Riel's English-speaking Secretary Honore Jackson and Dakota Chief Whitecap, the Saskatchewan provisional government that Riel formed was made up entirely of French-speaking Métis leadership. The leadership committee of the provisional government of Saskatchewan was given the name Exovidate by Riel, a Latin word for of the flock. The committee was based in the provisional government's capital in present-day Batoche, Saskatchewan. The Exovidate committee would meet regularly to debate military policy, local bylaws, as well as religious and societal issues and what they hoped would be the forming of a new autonomous state similar to Rial's provisional government in Manitoba 15 years prior. Now, it was a much different scenario for Rial and the Métis in 1885. The railway was expanding westward, making it much easier for the Canadian government to send troops to the conflict. The Northwest Mounted Police had also recently been created, developing as a brutal and oftentimes violent arm of the oppressive colonial settler state, which was wielded by the command of Canadian Prime Minister John A. Macdonald. Despite his religious ramblings scaring off much of his original base of supporters, Rial still managed to put together a coalition force made up of about 280 Métis and 250 Plains Cree to fight alongside him in Saskatchewan in the spring of 1885. After a number of famous and notable victories in the spring of 85, including the battles of Duck Lake, Fish Creek, and Cutknife, the Rial-led rebellion force of Métis and Cree and Nisanoboy fighters began to face a growing number of reinforcements, with Canadian police beginning to arrive to the conflict by rail. Gabriel Dumont, a respected hunter and leader of the St. Laurent Métis, led a number of these successful offenses, along with Cree Plains Chief Poundmaker, by implementing unorthodox tactics against the Northwest Mounted Police and other Canadian forces. Dumont avoided direct confrontation with the Canadians and instead opted to embark on what he hoped and planned would be a long, drawn-out campaign of guerrilla warfare by way of ambush, surprise raids, and flanking attacks corresponding with the tactical game of cat and mouse. 
Both Dumont and Poundmaker's tactics of unconventional warfare were proving to be successful, but Dumont's plan was ultimately abandoned when Rial insisted on the concentration of Métis forces at Batoche, which he referred to as the Métis People's City of God. Canadian forces laid siege on the Métis capital starting on May 9th, with the rebels holding off the raid for nearly three days. However, on May 12th, Métis forces became heavily outnumbered and ran out of ammunition and critical supplies. With no available ammunition, the Métis resorted to firing spent shell casings, sharp objects, and even small rocks, with a number of the remaining rebels being dispersed or killed when Canadian forces finally overtook their position after three days of fighting. Gabriel Dumont and a small Métis battalion managed to escape to the Montana Territory of the United States, while Métis leader Louis Riel was ultimately captured when he surrendered to Canadian forces a few days later on May 15th. Upon the news of Riel's surrender, Cree Chief Poundmaker, who was known to have spared the lives of Canadian forces during the Battle of Cutknife just two weeks prior, took his band of starving fighters to Battleford to make peace with Major General Frederick Middleton and the Canadian government. Poundmaker was arrested for his role in the rebellion and charged with felony treason. Upon his arrest, Poundmaker is noted to have told Canadian authorities, you did not catch me, I gave myself up, I wanted peace. With the fall of Batoche, the retreat of Dumont and the Métis rebels, along with the surrender of resistance leader Louis Riel, the provisional government of Saskatchewan had seemingly collapsed. However, the fall of Batoche did not end the conflict, as a small force of Cree and Isinoboy fighters continued to engage with the Canadian forces, carrying the day at the Battle of Frenchman's Boot on May 28th, two weeks after the fall of Batoche. On June 3, 1885, a small detachment of the Northwest Mounted Police managed to intercept Big Bear's Cree fighters who were forced to flee after running out of ammunition. In the weeks following the Battle of Loon Lake, a number of Big Bear's fighters would surrender to Canadian police after becoming demoralized and rendering themselves defenseless. On July 2nd, Cree Chief Big Bear surrendered to the Canadian police on an island in the Saskatchewan River near Fort Carleton in exchange for food and critical supplies for the Cree and his snowboy people. Along with Chief Big Bear and Chief Poundmaker, dozens of other Indigenous men, including the young Cree war chief Wandering Spirit, were arrested and charged with murder outside of military conflict in incidents related to the lootings of Battleford and the Frog Lake Massacre. Chief Wandering Spirit is said to have murdered Canadian federal government Indian agent Thomas Quinn, who is reported to have denied the Cree people food rations on several occasions. At the time, Indian agents were attempting to shepherd the Cree Plains people onto a plot land reserve by means of manipulation and starvation. When the Cree Plains people besieged Frog Lake during the rebellion earlier that spring, Quinn was taken from his home as a hostage due to his status. Upon arriving at the town church, Cree warriors would not let the townspeople of Frog Lake leave, and many of them would be taken as hostages. After attempting to move hostages out of the church to a nearby encampment, Quinn refused cooperation, which led to Wandering Spirit immediately shooting Quinn in the head with his rifle. At this point, the historian historical record states that the unexpected act of violence caused mass panic among hostages, and amidst the chaos, Cree warriors were alleged to have killed eight more unarmed people. This incident became known as the Frog Lake Massacre, and once news of the murders became public, the Canadian government decided to hold Big Bear responsible as an active participant in the rebellion, even though at this point he had no control over his band.
On November 7, 1885, the last spike in the Canadian Pacific Railway was driven by CP Director Sir Donald A. Smith. The rise of the Northwest Rebellion created a large increase in political support for the struggling railway project, which was facing near financial ruin prior to the spring blockade. With the resistance posing a significant threat, the government managed to authorize additional funds to finish the line, completing the expansive colonial project in just four years. With this, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald's national dream of linking a transcontinental railway across the nation of Canada became true. However, the rapid westward expansion of the Canadian colonial project came at a much greater human cost than what any current currency could ever compare. A little over a week after the completion of the railway, Métis leader Louis Riel was hanged for treason on November 16, 1885 at the Northwest Mounted Police Barracks in Regina. He was charged with six counts of high treason for his role in the Northwest Rebellion, with a guilty verdict under the Treason Act coming with a mandatory sentence of a death penalty. Riel was the only party involved in the rebellion to be charged with high treason. 71 other individuals were charged with the lesser offense of treason felony, while 12 others, including the Battleford eight were charged with murder. According to Professor Lauren Basson in her 2008 article entitled White Enough to be American, several government officials requested that Louis Rial's trial be held in Winnipeg. However, historians contend that the trial was moved to Regina in order to avoid the possibility of an ethnically mixed and sympathetic jury. In fact, history shows that MacDonald is likely to have ordered Justice Minister Alexander Campbell for the trial to be held in Regina, where Riel was tried before a jury of six English-speaking Protestants. Riel's trial began on July 20th, 1885, and lasted just five days. The Métis leader entered a plea of not guilty and refused his lawyer's advice of making a plea based on insanity. Rial defended his choice of using religious themes in his activism, insisting that his political actions were only for the purpose of real-world results. In his closing arguments, Rial stated that he hoped to one day be recognized for his force of good in Canadian history. Rial stated, I am glad the Crown have proven that I am the leader of the Métis in the Northwest. I will perhaps be, one day, acknowledged as more than a leader of the Métis. And if I am, I will have the opportunity of being acknowledged as a leader of good in this great country. On August 1st, 1885, after just an hour and 20 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Rial guilty of treason, but with recommendation of mercy. The foreman is said to have read the verdict in tears. Nonetheless, Judge Hugh Richardson sentenced Rial to death, the only punishment available under the Treason Act at that time. According to numerous Canadian historians, the outcome of Louis Rial's trial is likely to be due to the underhanded conduct of the McDonald's government. Canadian historian George Goulet has asserted numerous lingering issues about the trial. These issues include the mistreatment of Rial at the hands of his own legal counsel and the blatant attempts of manipulation and interference on behalf of Prime Minister John A. Macdonald, which includes political meddling uncovered involving correspondence between the Prime Minister and Justice Minister Alexander Campbell in the summer of 1885. Macdonald also faced harsh criticism at the time for denying the jury's recommendation for mercy of Rial. However, despite a public outcry, McDonald openly fought against public opinion in order to uphold the death sentence of the Métis leader. Following the sentencing, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald is famously quoted as saying, He shall hang though every dog in Quebec barks in his favour. Despite many pleas for mercy from across Canada, Louis Riel was executed by hanging on November 16th, with his last public words of record being, 
I give all my life as a sacrifice to God. Remessi, Madame, forget, et Mosu forget, oh my God. The trial, conviction, and execution of Louis Rial has been the subject of historical examination and critical review for over a hundred years, with acknowledgement of Rial's role in this nation's history receiving more organization and academic scrutiny than any other Canadian figure. Rial's biographer, Louis Thomas, wrote in his 1977 book, A Judicial Murder, The Trial of Louis Rial, that the government's conduct of the case was to be a travesty of justice. In a 1979 book published by prominent Canadian historian George Stanley, entitled Louis Rial, Patriot or Rebel. A member of the jury is quoted on the verdict 50 years after the trial as saying, We tried Rial for treason, and he was hanged for the murder of Thomas Scott. The death of Louis Riel marked the beginning of a bitter cultural struggle in Canada which echoed in the political landscape of the country for over a century. The Orange-Irish Protestants of Ontario strongly supported Riel's execution and demanded punishment for Riel's role in the killing of Canadian nationalist Thomas Scott during the Red River Rebellion back in 1870. The province of Quebec was vehemently opposed to Riel's hanging, with the overall opinion being that the execution of Riel was a symbol of Anglo-dominance and favoritism towards the English-speaking population of Canada. Now, this sentiment among French Canadians was not exclusive to Quebec. For many Francophones, Rial's execution had an everlasting negative impact on Franco-Anglo relations, with a polarizing new nation emerging in its wake, founded on redrawn ethno-cultural lines between increasingly hostile neighboring colonies. Eventually, the bitter alienation towards Francophones in Western Canada contributed to the present-day reality of the once diverse prairie provinces being overtaken by a majority of Anglophone settlers who historically allowed very little Francophone presence in the Northwest Territories. Overall, the 1885 suppression of the Franco-Métis-led rebellion by means of Rial's execution has been the cause for an ever-present rise of ethnic tensions and divisions in Canada, with the repercussions of these events continuing to be felt through the turn of the century and up until the present day. The execution of Rial, along with John A. Macdonald's refusal to commute his sentence, caused a rift in Quebec-Canadian relations that has been used for political exploitation for over a century. Immediately following the death of Rial, Quebec politician Henor Mercier rose to power by mobilizing the outrage of the dejected French-speaking Quebec population. Mercier used this discontent to his advantage and reconstituted the Parti National, which ran a campaign on Franco-autonomy and Quebec nationalism in the year following Rial's execution and won a majority government in the Quebec provincial elections of 1886. The following year in the 1887 Canadian federal elections, John A. Macdonald retained a majority government, but Quebec Liberals made massive gains in the province by opposing Macdonald for his role in Rial's execution. These gains made in Quebec in the 1887 federal election would lead to the victory of the Liberal Party under Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier in 1896 and would set the stage for a continued Liberal dominance in Quebec's federal politics, which carried on for over a half century. In the wake of the ethnic tensions caused by the execution of Louis Rial, Quebec's population became a major cornerstone of influence in Canada, based on a new coalition of Franco-liberals and dissenting French-speaking conservatives who sought regional autonomy and further independence from the perceived Anglophone favoring Canadian government. 
In the aftermath of Riel's death and the quelling of the Northwest Rebellion, the Métis people of Western Canada became increasingly marginalized in the Prairie Provinces. English-speaking settlers began moving westward upon the completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway and settled on lands that were part of traditional Métis territory. After years of state-sanctioned racism, cultural erasure, and outright land theft, the majority of Riel's people were forced to assimilate into Anglo-Canadian culture. Time and misunderstood history quickly phased out the Métis people's identity and cultural influence in the Prairie Provinces, as well as in the country of Canada as a whole. Because of this, Métis heritage is far more common than is generally realized among the population of Canada, with geneticists estimating that a possibility of 50% of today's population in Western Canada having some form of Aboriginal ancestry. This fact was all but lost in the consciousness of the collective Canadian identity until the rise of the Information Age in the mid-20th century. After World War II, with the expansion of mass media for consumption, access to documents of historical significance became more widespread, which sparked a new emergence of interpretation pertaining to the reality of the Métis and First Nations people in the early days of Canada's history. The original historic retelling of Réal and the Métis people's actions often depicted them in a mythopoetic form, framing the Canadian government as a heroic patriotic force standing up against a barbaric regime of uncivilized savages. However, academics and historical pundits gradually formed a critical understanding of Réal and the Métis people's true role in early Canadian history. It began to be understood among most historical scholars that the Métis and First Nations people of Canada had major unresolved grievances and that the government's lack of response to these issues often led to fatal material conditions which prompted Réal to choose a path of violent rebellion only as a last resort. By the mid-20th century, the trial and execution of Louis Réal began to be understood as a major cause for ethnocultural polarization, which continued to draw lines of tension across the country of Canada. In 1982, historian Doug Orwin wrote in the Canadian Historical Review that Rial had become a, quote, Canadian folk hero with even, quote, mythical status in English-speaking Canada. In 2010, then-Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin, spoke on Louis Rial and his role as the leader of the Métis people. The Métis' demands weren't taken seriously in Saskatchewan. If they had been... It seems to me the violence of the Northwest Uprising and Riel's hanging would never have happened. Riel's initial tactics, both in the Red River Uprising and the Saskatchewan Uprising, were the same. He wanted peaceful agitation in order to get recognition for some basic rights. In the first uprising in Red River, the newly minted Canadian government ultimately listened to Riel's concerns and responded by granting the right to the French language and to practice the Catholic religion, as well as provincial status. In the second Saskatchewan uprising, a more mature Canada, under perhaps different circumstances, refused to recognize the Métis demands, refused to even discuss them, refusing to so much as consider the claims of peoples who had lived in the prairies for generations, who had their own distinct language and culture. The government simply plowed forward with its plan to resettle the West, allowing nothing to stand in its way. Riel's story teaches us that we must look seriously at grievances. We must not sweep dissent under the carpet. We must not ride roughshod over difference. We must address the concerns that our First Nations people and others like them bring about their status, about their situation. 
And we must do this from a stance of respect and reconciliation. We must always remember the values that Riel fought for. Inclusion, equality, respect and accommodation are fragile ones. We recognize them, we must continue to do so. Perhaps the, day, the debates surrounding Riel's patriotism is best resolved in Riel's words himself. Just before the jury retired to consider its verdict, Riel asked to speak. He looked each juror in the eye and he said, I am glad the Crown have proved that I am the leader of the half-breeds in the Northwest. I will perhaps one day be acknowledged as more than a leader of half-breeds. And if I am, I will have an opportunity of being acknowledged as a leader of good in this great country. Today, there is no doubt that Riel stands as a leader, not only of Métis, important as that is, but of all Canadians. He teaches us that the identities and rights that make up our complex heritage must be respected, not crushed. And he teaches us that we must seek justice for all, the despised as much as the privileged, not only in form, but in substance. These lessons are as relevant today as they were when Louis Riel was hanged. In reminding us of them, Louis Riel stands as he would have wished as a leader of good in our great country. Thank you, merci beaucoup. Hey, just a heads up to warn listeners, this portion of the podcast at times includes graphic references to topics such as racism, violence, and imprisonment, as well as disturbing references to the cultural, ethnic, and holistic genocide of Indigenous and First Nations people. It is extremely important to understand that while Louis Riel's execution caused colossal repercussions for the Métis people, their culture, and their way of life, it respectfully pales in comparison to the suffering endured by other non-European Indigenous and First Nations people in the wake of the Northwest Rebellion. The rebellion marked the climax of the Canadian government's efforts to clamp down a control on First Nations communities in Western Canada. This spurred ecological disaster, massive food shortages, and the normalization of justified violence to towards indigenous people living in Western Canada. The Cree Plains people of the Western Prairies had already felt that they were being oppressed in the lead up to the rebellion, with the numbered treaties leaving First Nations communities openly subjugated by the Canadian government. In the wake of the rebellion, numerous Métis leaders with political influence and interests that overlap First Nations communities either fled to Montana to escape treason charges, were jailed, or in Rial's case, executed. Along with the efforts of the Indigenous and Métis resistance falling short, the First Nations people were reared politically and emotionally damaged for generations in the wake of the conflict. A number of prominent Indigenous leaders were imprisoned or executed for their roles in various incidents surrounding the Northwest Rebellion. After the arrest of Louis 
Louis Real in the summer of 1885, Cree leaders Big Bear, Poundmaker, and Wandering Spirit, along with 13 other Cree band members, were transported to Regina to stand trial on charges ranging from treason felony to murder. The trials of these men were mostly overseen by Magistrate Charles Rouleau, who he alleged had his house burned down by Cree warriors during the looting of Battleford earlier that year. Rouleau was admittedly bitter about this ordeal, and according to a December 1885 issue of the Saskatchewan Herald, he openly threatened that every Indian and half-breed rebel brought before him after the insurrection was suppressed would be sent to the gallows if possible. While Cree war chief Wandering Spirit is alleged to have openly admitted to the murder of Thomas Quinn, he insisted that he only played a minor role in the uprising and that he felt immense guilt for the role that he played in both the Frog Lake Massacre and the death of Quinn. Based on the historical record, Wandering Spirit is reported to have told the court that he opposed his people's role in the rebellion, but that other Cree leaders, including Chief Big Bear's son, a Macy's, wouldn't let him leave the band. On September 22, 1885, Wandering Spirit was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Upon sentencing, Magistrate Rouleau is reported to have described Wandering Spirit as, quote, the greatest killer ever to walk on two legs in America. After his sentencing, Wandering Spirit said he wished that his death alone could atone for his acts, stating that he was saddened that others had to die with him. Seven other indigenous men faced murder charges for their roles at Frog Lake and the looting of Battleford. The trials of these men were held only in English, preventing all of the accused from being able to defend themselves against any of the charges. In fact, the only method of communication for many of the accused was through Catholic missionaries who were reported to have encouraged the defendants to plead guilty, regardless of whether or not they actually committed the crimes they were charged with. These judicial irregularities raise question of authenticity in regards to some of the charges brought up against the Battleford Eight and whether or not authorities ever managed to properly verify the identity of the culprits of the murders. William Cameron, a store clerk who worked in Frog Lake at the time of the massacre, testified at the trials against some of the accused men, though his testimony has come under increased scrutiny for being of secondhand nature and oftentimes seemingly coerced. This can be demonstrated in the historical record of the October 3, 1885 trials of both Miserable Man and Bad Arrow, who were both charged for the murder of civilian Charles Gowan. During the trial, Miserable Man requested that the witness testimony of William Cameron be used to back his alibi, placing him in the Frog Lake store during the time of the massacre. However, Cameron was uninterested in cooperating with Miserable Man's testimony and refused to back his alibi. Instead, the Crown used Cameron to secure testimony from other indigenous witnesses who claimed that Wandering Spirit ordered both Bad Arrow and Miserable Man to shoot Gowan simultaneously. Meanwhile, in the murder trial of George Dill, the evidence against Iron Body, and more specifically Little Bear, has become increasingly unconvincing through the lens of historical hindsight. In a similar instance to the murder of William Gowan, both Little Bear and Iron Body were alleged to have fired the fatal shot that killed George Dill in either rapid succession or simultaneously. However, based on his own testimony, Iron Body refuted that Little Bear was the culprit of the murder, maintaining that a Cree Plains warrior who managed to flee Canadian authorities was the one responsible for the killing of George Dill. 
Now, this might be the biggest fuck-up involved in all of this, because Apachascus, a.k.a. Little Bear, was a Cree Plains warrior who shared the same name as the son of Cree chief Big Bear, who was also known by the name of Emesis, as well as Little Bear. Based on historical records, Chief Wandering Spirit and Emesis led a group of Cree warriors to attack the settlement of Frog Lake, where Thomas Quinn and eight other civilians were killed. The problem here is, just as Iron Body described in the murder trial of George Dill, Emesis managed to escape Canadian authorities. In fact, we know this. Emesis fled to the United States, became a prominent leader of the Ojibwe people in southwest Montana in the years following the rebellion. Now, this might seem somewhat circumstantial, however, it becomes a lot more obvious that this was very likely the case of mistaken identity when you consider the events that played out later on in Amici's life. In 1896, Amici's was among hundreds of landless Cree and Ojibwe in Montana that were deported back to Canada. Upon his return, Amici's was immediately apprehended by Canadian authorities, and although the historical retelling of what happened to Amici's after that is very unclear, records show no indication that Amesis faced any formal charges for his role in the Frog Lake Massacre. Amesis returned to the U.S. in the late 1890s and lived the rest of his life in Montana and died in 1921. Historians have suggested that the failure to convict Amesis was likely the cause of the Canadian government's unwillingness to allow any suggestion of doubt surrounding the identities and possible innocence of the indigenous men that were executed at Battleford just 11 years earlier. Now, again, in hindsight, this looks like a pretty huge fuck-up, especially considering that Apuchaskus little bear that was convicted and hung for the murder of George Dill asserted his innocence until he was executed. He stated, I never thought to lift my hand against a white man. In many ways, the use of the death penalty against the Battleford Eight was seen as a way for the Canadian government to once again assert their dominance over the Cree First Nations and other indigenous people living on the prairies. The Canadian government likely hoped to make an example out of the Battleford Eight in order to discourage any further indigenous uprisings. This can be demonstrated by referring to the words of Prime Minister John A. Macdonald, who was famously quoted to have said this of the hangings, We must vindicate the position of the white man and we must teach the Indians what is law. On the morning of November 27, 1885, at Fort Battleford, Wandering Spirit, Round the Sky, Bad Arrow, Miserable Man, Iron Body, Little Bear, Crooked Leg, and Man Without Blood were all executed by way of hanging in what remains today as the largest mass execution in Canadian history. Wandering Spirit was the only man who refused to give any last words before his death, and while it's said that the other men shouted war cries in defiance of their accusers, Wandering Spirit is reportedly to have remained stoic and still before being hung in front of a small crowd of onlookers. According to the University of Regina, the day that the hangings of the Battleford 8 took place, all attendees at the Battleford Industrial School, the first Indian residential school in Canadian history, were taken out to witness the executions. It is suggested by some historians that this action may have been done in order to intentionally inflict both fear and generational trauma on the younger generation of First Nations people, especially for those who had relatives that took part in the rebellion. After the executions, the bodies of the eight men were placed in a mass grave near the campground of Fort Battleford, with the grave being left unmarked and forgotten for almost a hundred years. 
1972, the site was rediscovered by students at the University of Regina who followed plans of the fort in order to find the location of the burial plot. The location was then marked with a concrete pad and chain fence, and in 1985, a hundred years after the executions, the Northwest Centennial Advisory Committee and Battleford City Council erected a modern headstone at the gravesite bearing the names of the eight executed Indigenous men. In addition to the executions of the Battleford Eight, the trials of both Cree Chief Big Bear and Cree Plains Chief Poundmaker took place in the fall of 1885. Big Bear was in decent standing with numerous government officials at the time of his trial and had a good reputation with authorities for negotiating problems between his people and the Canadian government peacefully in the lead up to the rebellion. Despite his people's involvement in the rebellion, Big Bear was still mostly respected among settlers and government authorities in the Northwest. Many believe that his attempts at preventing an escalation of violence during the events at Frog Lake would be enough for the Cree chief to avoid being convicted. According to Canadian historian Hugh Dempsey, a civilian who was taken prisoner at Fort Pitt, Stanley Simpson, was the only person to testify as a witness for the prosecution in Big Bear's trial. Meanwhile, numerous witnesses of the events at Frog Lake testified in defense of Big Bear, refuting his involvement in any of the violent acts that took place. Indian Affairs agent Henry R. Halpin, who was held captive by Big Bear's people for over two months, testified that he saw Big Bear as just as much of a prisoner as he saw himself. Store clerk William Cameron, who was also held captive by Big Bear's Cree people, testified that he heard Big Bear try to stop the massacre at Frog Lake by opposing the use of violence against the townspeople. The evidence was overwhelmingly in favor of Big Bear, with clear indications that he was not involved in any of the killings at Frog Lake, the looting at Battleford, or the taking of prisoners at Fort Pitt. However, at the time of the trial, Big Bear was 60 years old, and with the trial being held only in English, he was oftentimes seen as confused and visibly frustrated with the proceedings. Despite the lack of evidence, Big Bear was found guilty of treason felony and was sentenced to three years in prison at Stony Mountain Penitentiary in Manitoba. While in prison, Big Bear fell gravely ill, and after converting to Catholicism, he was released from prison after serving just half of his term. About a year after his release, Big Bear died at the age of 62 years old and was buried in a Roman Catholic cemetery on the Little Pine First Nations Reserve in Saskatchewan. Plains Cree Chief Poundmaker was also facing charges of felony treason for his role in the Northwest Rebellion. Poundmaker was respected by Canadian authorities as well for calling off his band of fighters during the Battle of Cutknife Hill. In the months following the rebellion, it became well known among Canadian forces that Poundmaker's actions likely prevented immense loss of life on both sides of the conflict. During his trial, Poundmaker is reported to have said this in his defense. Everything that is bad has been laid against me this summer. There is nothing of it true. Had I wanted war, I would not be here now. I should be on the prairie. You did not catch me. I gave myself up. You have got me because I wanted justice. Despite very little evidence tying Poundmaker to any of the violence during the rebellion, the Plains Creek chief was found guilty of felony treason and was sentenced to three years in prison at Stony Mountain Penitentiary. Because of his banned status and as the adopted son of First Nations Chief Crowfoot, Poundmaker was not forced to cut his hair in prison and was said to have been highly respected by other inmates during his time 
time of imprisonment. After serving just seven months of his three-year sentence, Poundmaker was released from prison. However, the conditions at the penitentiary had devastating effects on his health. Shortly after his release, at the age of just 44 years old, Poundmaker died due to a lung hemorrhage caused by complications of tuberculosis, which he contracted while in prison. Poundmaker was buried at Blackfoot Crossing in Gleechin, Alberta in 1886, but was exhumed in 1967, with his remains being reburied at Poundmaker Reserve in Cutknife, Saskatchewan. On May 23, 2019, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke in front of members of the Poundmaker Cree Nation to exonerate Poundmaker of his felony treason conviction. Labeled as a rebellion band by the Government of Canada, the Poundmaker Cree Nation saw the reputation of their honored chief tarnished by his wrongful conviction and were forced to live without a chief for over three decades. Although Chief Poundmaker was released early from prison due to his deteriorating health, he died only four months after his release in 1886 while visiting his adopted father, Chief Crowfoot, at Blackfoot Crossing. He was buried there, and in 1867, his remains were brought back to the Poundmaker Cree Nation and buried here at Battle Site Hill. Today, our government acknowledges that Chief Poundmaker was a peacemaker who never stopped fighting for peace. A leader who, time and time again, a leader who, time and time again, sought to prevent further loss of life in the growing conflict in the prairies. The Government of Canada recognizes that Chief Poundmaker was not a criminal, but someone who worked tirelessly to ensure the survival of his people and hold the Crown accountable to its obligations as laid out in Treaty 6, we recognize that the unjust conviction and imprisonment of Chief Poundmaker had and continues to have a profound impact on the Poundmaker Cree Nation. And so, as an important symbol for our desire to revitalize our relationship with the Poundmaker Cree Nation, I am here today on behalf of the Government of Canada to confirm without reservation that Chief Poundmaker is fully exonerated of any crime or wrongdoing. It's not officially recognized as such. Both Big Bear and Poundmaker are widely credited among modern Canadian historians for being a large factor in the founding of the province of Saskatchewan. The land requests made by the Saskatchewan Métis people prior to the Northwest Rebellion were all granted by the government at the end of 1887, which included the government resurrecting Métis river lots in accordance to the initial grievances that led to the 1885 rebellion. Now, it's also very important to note that while these requests were met, much of the land was soon illegally bought up by speculators who later turned huge profits by selling the plots back to land developers upon the completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway and the westward expansion of the Canadian Anglo population. 
Saskatchewan became a province in 1905, 20 years after the Northwest Rebellion, but not until the fears of Louis Riel became fully realized. The Métis of Saskatchewan were increasingly forced into undesirable lands and often lived in shanty towns in the slums of their day. The indigenous people of Saskatchewan and the French-speaking Métis face increasing marginalization and cultural erasure in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba. This could be exemplified in the controversy surrounding the 1894 Amendment to the Indian Act, which made attendance at day schools, industrial schools, or residential schools compulsory for First Nations children. The signing of this brutally oppressive amendment was done by the fifth Prime Minister of Canada, Mackenzie Bowell. However, the framework for a forced assimilation of Indigenous people and the residential school system was laid out by John A. Macdonald during his second term as Prime Minister, starting in 1878. In January of 1879, Macdonald commissioned conservative politician Nicholas F. Davin to write a report regarding the industrial boarding school system in the United States. Macdonald had previously shown an interest in implementing a similar framework in Canada, geared towards the assimilation of Indigenous people into what he referred to as Canadian culture. This document is widely considered to be the cornerstone of the architectural framework for the Canadian Indian residential school system. In the report, Davin advised the federal government to institute residential schools for all Indigenous children in Canada. Now, Macdonald took pride in his plans for cultural assimilation, mostly because he was an outright white supremacist and really had no shame in stating it overtly. In 1883, during an address to the Canada House of Commons, Macdonald shared his views on the need for residential schools and the assimilation of Indigenous people in Canada. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It is strongly pressed on myself and the head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. Under Prime Minister John A. Macdonald, the Canadian government would implement the residential school system with the first school opening in 1883 in Battleford. The purpose of the school was to isolate Indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and to assimilate them into Canadian culture. In 2015, the Canadian government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded that the forced assimilation of Indigenous people amounted to, in the community's words, cultural genocide. While the number of school-related deaths remain unknown to the incomplete records, the estimation of reported deaths ranged from 3,200 to as high as 30,000. In 2017, Indigenous protesters in Ottawa erected a teepee at the foot of Parliament Hill to counter a large four-day celebration that marked 150 years of Canada as a nation. On the second day of the protest, a press conference was held with family members of missing and murdered Indigenous women and children who took questions from the Canadian media. Most Canadians think that just that you don't feel what he's doing is worthwhile. Well, have you seen how much teenagers are going missing in uh, Thunder Bay? You know, um, there's white supremacy, obviously. You know, that's what's going on. You know, that young boy. Uh, yeah. How could he be blamed for that? I mean, you don't think that anything he's doing is helping the situation? Is it? Is he, is he an improvement over Stephen Harper? I mean, what... what Talk record, is it? Excuse me, did I just hear you correctly? 
How can he be blamed can't. for that? No, excuse, me. excuse me. Don't right speak now. to us that way. Stop right now. You do not speak to us that way. We are human beings. And the way that you're speaking to us is not acceptable. You are not no, stop it. Stop it right now. You don't. We don't want you here. Can you please leave? Step out. Step out. Then I don't want to hear from you. You don't speak to us like that. Very simple question. Can yeah. I an answer? And this is the problem, the way you communicate. I'm not insinuating anything. No. I'm looking for information. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm, I'm not arguing. Stop. No, stop. Stop. You need to stop. You need to stop. Stop. You're a guest here. And you don't even know how to speak to us. You don't even recognize the tone in your voice and your delivery. And we're and no, you're done. You're done. Next question. I'll, I'll re-ask Louis' question. Do you, how do you think? Do you how do you re-ask? Yes. Somebody how do you think? You better be respectful. I'm being totally respectful. I'm, I'm asking how Justin Trudeau's record compared to Stephen Harper's record. Do you think he's improved the situation? I think that's what Julie was asking. Like we have a holistic genocide happening here. I'm. Don't speak on behalf of Julie. Could you just answer the question, please? I can please? speak for myself. I was asking. And I can speak for myself. You know what, white people? You've had your voice here for 524 years. 524 years you've been visible, white lady. You've been visible for 524 years. Look how fast your white man comes and steps up for you. Exactly. Where, where is everybody else to come and step up for us? I have a right to my voice. I'm still fighting for my voice and my visibility. We asked the question, and I'm telling you, and I'm time. telling you right now, there has been 524 years of holistic genocide on Turtle Island. We're the ones that are dying. It's not you that is dying. And, and as far as how Justin Trudeau is doing, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is we're asking the United Nations to help us that charges of genocide, a war against humanity, war crimes, and a crime of aggression be laid because your liberal party was also responsible. Every party, your every governance that has been in power, there's been a war conflict of Indian residential school, 60 scoop, Indian day school, and millennium scoop. None of your governments have clean hands. All your governments, all of your governments have blood on their hands. None of you are different. You haven't changed because you haven't started your healing journeys. The moment that we have our voice in our backbone, you, you want to shut us down. And you think you have, you're privileged to disrespect us. The moment we tell you because of your colonial mindset and your colonial way of being, your white privilege, your white fragility, you can't take our truth. Look how many people came to bat for you, white lady, and you're a guest here. Without us, you'd be homeless. This is over.
Most Canadians know Sir John A. Macdonald as the country's first Prime Minister, but he was also an MP for Victoria, and his statue has been standing here for more than 35 years, but likely not much longer. In order to really commit to reconciliation, uh, we need to remove the statue of Johnny Macdonald from the front steps of City Hall. The driving force of Confederation is going into storage because of a history that's not celebrated. The fact that his government created the Indian Act and established the residential school system where thousands were abused and generations of trauma followed. Following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and in the wake of a new critical understanding of Canada's historical atrocities towards the Indigenous, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald's legacy has rightfully come under harsh scrutiny, with many communities opting to remove historical references to Macdonald in acts of reconciliation. In 2018, a statue of John A. Macdonald was removed from outside Victoria City Hall as a part of the city's program for reconciliation with local First Nations. In June of 2021, a statue of Macdonald in Charlottetown, PEI, a historical city which hosted the 1864 Charlottetown Conference, removed a statue of the former Prime Minister after City Council voted unanimously to remove it. On June 18, 2021, following the discovery of 215 unmarked graves at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, the statue of John A. Macdonald was removed from Kingston City Park after City Council voted 12 to 1 in favor of its removal. Weeks later, on July 5, 2021, Canada's National Library deleted its webpage on Canada's Prime Minister's First Among Equals, calling the manuscript outdated and redundant. These small but significant acts of reconciliation are the beginning of what should be a spark for a cultural paradigm shift in the collective understanding of how this de facto nation came to be. Canada was formed in the wake of a series of uprisings, rebellions, and even insurrection attempts. The borders along the provinces and territories of this country mark historical lines of bargaining and conceded sovereignty, handed over to the people who oftentimes fought and died for a land to call their own. While this nation's shame could be raised when historical atrocities such as the Caroline Affair, the execution of Louis Riel, and the imprisonment of indigenous land defenders such as Palmaker or Big Bear come to light, an even darker and more heinous indignity of our nation can be found by piercing the veil of myth and legend and by exploring the true intentions of the very first European settlers that came here and the way that the colonial powers laid claim to lands belonging to sovereign nations of American indigenous people. In the next episode of this podcast, we will explore how a papal proclamation known as the Doctrine of Discovery laid the framework for mass displacement and a cultural genocide of the indigenous people of North America, how colonizers used disease, slavery, rape, and war to lay waste to an entire civilization of people, only to be replaced by a new breed of European settlers and a prospect for Avdani of what they believed was a new world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cue the Coup, a creation of sparkoflifemedia.ca. Music and audio sources for this episode are being used under the Fair Use Act and under the Creative Commons International Public Use License. For updates on this and other stories discussed in this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Q2Q and Spark of Life TO. Also, be sure to join our new Discord server for updates and community outreach. For all sourced information from this episode, please visit sparkoflifemedia.ca. Thank you again for listening to the Q2Q podcast. Look at our collection of hands. Skin and bone, and when we fight.
Your days. 